Last summer, I shared a statistic with you that has been rattling around in my mind ever since. Haven't been able to shake it. In fact, it's come back to land on me a number of different times. May not of you, but it has landed on me. And so it bears looking at just a bit more. As I've been looking at it for several months leading to this point, I, I just hope that you will find something that you need today. Here's the statistic. Take a look at this. Young children make around 3,000 decisions every day. 3,000 decisions every day. That's young children. By the time we're adults, we average 35,000 decisions every day. 35,000 decisions every day. You make 35,000 decisions every day. Isn't that crazy to think about? That begins with things like whether to turn the alarm off or not. It progresses into wonderful deep things like what pair of socks should I wear today? Which fork should I grab when I open up the drawer and I'm having breakfast? Innocuous decisions, if you will. But in the midst of those 35,000, there are a lot of decisions that are anything but innocuous. They are deep things that you have to decide upon as it sets a course not only for your day, but possibly the rest of your life. Huge decisions that have to be made. Tiny little decisions that are a part of everyday life and huge decisions that are a part of everyday life. Over the course of the decades that I've been in ministry, I have talked about decision-making with a lot of people. And I have had a number of folks who have said, it would be so much easier if God would just remove choices from us and tell us what to do. But the truth of the matter is, none of us would really like that. We don't want God to tell us everything that we're supposed to do. If we actually realized that, we would feel like little more than robots. So we don't want God to remove those things from us. What we really want, if we are honest about it, is for God to help us in the process of making all of these decisions. Now, of course, when we look at the whole of it, we begin to understand that God wired us in such a way that we have to make choices, and that even begins with the choice that we have to make to follow Him, to love Him, to call Him our God and our Savior. That's one of the the primary choices that the Lord has given us, and once we make that choice, All the other choices underneath that become a reflection of our relationship with Him. This is a big deal in the kingdom of God. This is a big deal for the children of God. How we make choices matters. What we do with the decisions that are placed in front of us matters. So this morning, I want to help you take a biblical approach to decision-making. I want you to understand biblically how all of these decisions that we are confronted with come together in our lives. And I want us to start with one that is huge. I mean massive, probably second to whether to become a Christian or not. And it touches everyone's life at some point. Of course, I am talking about where to go out to eat when we are out of town. 
It is one of the most difficult decisions anyone will ever face. And if you are married, that is only multiplied. So this morning, I want to talk for about 20 seconds just to the men that are in this room because men know the struggle of this choice a whole lot differently than women do. Because, fellas, how many of you, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, know what I'm talking about. You go to Kalispell for the day and you say to your wife, hey, where do you want to go eat? And you get met with, oh, I don't care. And so you say, well, how about here? And all you get is a list of no's telling you, well, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right. I have a gift for you today. This is my gift to all of the husbands in this room. Ladies, check out. This isn't for you, and I don't want to spoil what's happening. So don't pay attention for what I'm about to put up on the screen. But fellas, my New Year's gift to you. Here it is. Don't ask a girl where she wants to eat. Tell her to guess where you're taking her to eat, and then take her to the first guess. Best way in the world to solve this problem. There you go. Absolute best way to solve this problem. So my gift to you, do with it whatever you need to do. But, you know, every once in a while, shoot off a a response for me and let me know how it worked out for you. All right, with all of that aside, let's let's get into this issue of these 35,000 choices that we have to make. When we start talking about how we make decisions and how we make choices, it will lead us right into a deep discussion about the will of God, about the will of God, because God is involved in our lives in such an intricate way that we cannot have this discussion without talking about this. And when we talk about the will of God, the first place that we have to go is to what I refer to as the determined will of God, the determined will of God. It is the first aspect of His will. Now, let me explain it to you real quick. The determined will of God is absolute. It is absolute. It is unconditional. It is unchangeable. And it is always, listen to this, it is always in agreement with his nature and his character. That is the determined will of God. It touches some different things in our life. By the way, when you start looking at the determined will of God, you'll stumble across words like immutable. It is the immutable will of God, which simply means the unchangeable will of God. In the immutable will of God, your opinion doesn't matter. Your thoughts do not matter. Your desires do not matter. These are choices that God has made for you. They're ones, and and there's not that many of them, but they're ones that God has said, it's going to be this way, and you're going to have to deal with it. Now, let me give you just a few examples. The determined will of God touches things like where you were born who your parents are, how many siblings, brothers and sisters you might have, whether you are an only child, whether you're male or female, determined by the the determined will of God, the immutable will of God. There are a number of people that would teach that your interest, your talents fit within this category In the determined will of God, God has placed certain things within you that he didn't place within someone else. 
So here's just a good example of that. You might look at my life and recognize that through the immutable, the unchangeable will of God, I can shoot at moving targets where Jim Ray does not have that ability. So there's, there's a difference within that. And then we continue progressing through our understanding of that until we discover that even the day of our death is determined by God. That fits within the immutable, determined will of God. Now, when we start exploring that, we will discover in the determined will of God that oftentimes it is only visible in hindsight. We can only see the determined will of God as we look backwards. And we can certainly only see the purpose of the determined will of God as we look backwards. You don't get to really understand it in the midst of it. You have to look backwards. Now, that is not always the case. There are some aspects of the determined will of God that right in the midst of those issues in our life, we understand the purpose of it. Now, here's a, a, just a quick example for you. The Ten Commandments, we're going to be studying that. The Ten Commandments all fit within the determined will of God, and each one of them has a purpose. They're immutable. They're unconditional. They touch everybody. Believer, non-believer, does not matter. These are the determined will of God that we need to be paying attention to. But when we get into these other things where choices are made for us, oftentimes we're going to have to look backwards in order to understand it. And then, as we really study the determined will of God, you will come across some things that will leave you scratching your head. They will leave you with more questions than answers. And I do not care who you are. That is the truth. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This comes from the book of Isaiah. It's up on the screen. Take a look. This is Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, do you see two really curious things in the midst of that passage? Hopefully, they're standing out to you. Listen again. I make well-being and create calamity. God said that. I make well-being and I create calamity. And that's in the determined will of God. Now, here's one of the ways to understand that. I grew up in Tornado Alley. Tina did as well, which means that as we were growing up, we spent a lot of time in our basements as, as tornado sirens were going off and tornadoes were touching down all around us. After the sirens would stop and you'd turn on the radio or the TV and they would tell you that the warning has been lifted or the tornado has already passed by, one of the first things that we all did was get in the, the car or the truck and go drive around and see what kind of damage was done. I graduated in Hutchison, Kansas, graduated high school there. There was a little community outside of Hutchison where people that owned massive corporations like the Morton Salt 
people lived in this little community. Gated community, of course, because very wealthy people lived there. And the mansions that they lived in were massive. So except for times when tornadoes would come through and rip the gates out, nobody was ever allowed to drive through there. Well, at one particular time, tornadoes were raging all around Hutchison, Kansas, and the only homes that were touched by those tornadoes happened to be in that little community. And the owner of Morton Salt's big, huge mansion happened to be one of them that was touched, and we were all able to go drive through it. What we discovered was the tornado that had come through hit the Morton home and cut it right in half exposing it like a dollhouse so that you could see the rooms in the house just ripped a path right through the center of their home. But it didn't touch the house on the right or the left. It hit a couple other houses in line with it, but the houses to the right and to the left of the Morton home were left standing intact with virtually no problems whatsoever, maybe a few shingles that were gone. Now, why does that happen? Why does that happen? I can't answer that question, except for this passage. I make well-being, and I create calamity. Sometimes, in God's determined will, God just does things. He has a reason and a purpose for it, but we're not privileged to understand that. It is a place of great faith. When we come up against the determined will of God and we understand these things about the Lord, there are times where we just have to say, it's all good. It's all good because God is God and I am not. And so I'll accept that. In the determined will of God, particularly on the calamity side of it, that is often what's required. Now that could sound kind of depressing, and so for Christians, I want you to know that there's some encouragement that goes with that. It comes from things like this in Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. So I can trust it. God's doing something for my good. I may not understand it, may not be able to explain it, but I can trust it because God's doing this for my good. If you're a note taker, you might want to go to the book of Isaiah and then to Romans and write in the margin of your Bible next to these two passages, Isaiah 45 and Romans chapter 8, the directed will of God. Just put that in there so that when you have opportunity to sit with people, and a lot of folks have opportunity to sit with people in this discussion, you will have passages of Scripture that you can go to just so you can help them understand some of these things. And be okay, be okay with those times where you have to say, I don't know, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense to me either. I don't know, but I trust God. It is all right to be able to say that. It's a place of great faith. So when it comes to these 35,000 decisions, sometimes we have to understand that we have little to no impact in the things that happen in our lives. God is just God. Those get set over here on their own. That's the directed will of God. But then we go to what I refer to as the permissive will of God. The permissive will of God is the place where free will kicks in. The permissive will of God is the place where we get to start having some choices, where we start making some decisions. The permissive will of God 
is unique as well. Because sometimes in the permissive will of God, some things happen in our lives externally that we would have never wanted and we did nothing to bring about. It is God allowing some things to happen. Different than the directed will of God, God is simply permitting it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have your Bible with you, open up to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 1. This is going to sound a lot like the directed will of God, but it is different. This is the permissive will of God. God is permitting something. Verse 6, chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, and particularly the, the next chapter and a half, you know that great calamity falls on Job, and Satan brings that about because God allows it. He moves the boundaries around Job's life and permits Satan to have certain influence and impact in his servant's life. That's the permissive will of God. It's tough for us to understand that. It is tough for us to embrace that, just like sometimes in the directed will of God where calamity is concerned, we find ourselves saying, why would God allow this? Not even why would God do this, but why would God allow this? It can be really difficult, but again, it's a place of great faith. And as I have had to embrace that and talk about it through the years, more times than I really can count, as I've had these conversations over and over and over again, about the only place that I can take anybody is back to the book of Isaiah where we read these words. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. God's doing something. He's molding and shaping. And even by moving the boundaries and allowing certain things to happen in our life, that truth becomes very evident. God's doing something. He allowed Satan to have this influence in my life for a reason. I'm going to have to trust him as I work my way through it. I will trust God because God permitted this. That's the permissive will of God from the external approach. But there is an internal approach as well in the permissive will of God where we really find free will, where we find this place where God says, you can determine the outcome of this. Your choices are going to determine the path that you are on. It's the permissive will of God. 
And I can't think of a better place to demonstrate that than the Gospel of John. So let's go there together. John chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what John writes. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of the invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that is the place of God's permissive will. I want to set aside all of the mythology of this. I want to set aside all of the things that the man even alluded to that if he wasn't the first one in the pool and nobody's there to help him. I want to set all that aside because we could travel that road just on its own and it would derail us from what we're talking about. What I want us to focus on are the words of Jesus. Do you want to get well? Now Jesus asked that of a man that had been in this condition for 38 years. That almost seems cruel. Do you want to get well? Of course the man's going to say yes. He's there every day trying to get well. So of course he wants to get well. But then Jesus says something to him that is is at the same time confusing and miraculous. Then get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the man did. In that moment, a whole bunch of free will came crashing down on that man. He could have said, what are you talking about? Get up. That's why I'm here. I can't get up. He could have said that. He could have said, Lord, there's nobody here to help me. I've already told you that. How do you expect me to get up? He didn't. He simply got up. In the realm of 35,000 decisions that that man was going to make that day, that one changed his life because he could have stayed right there on the mat. He was familiar with the mat. He was comfortable on the mat. That mat defined his life. Going to the pool every day defined his life. He had a choice that he had to make, and he made the right choice. He listened to the Lord, and he made the right choice. And everything changed for him from that moment forward. Well, the same thing happens for us, where God allows choices to be put in front of us, and we get to determine what to do with it. And they can be this big. They can be along the same lines as John chapter 5. Not all of those 35,000 choices that you make in a day are sock-related choices. Some of them are this big. During the time that I was studying for this message, I, I saw this pop up on Facebook. I was really intrigued by this. It's a pretty good statement. Some people don't want to be fixed because being broken gets them attention. 
And that's true. There are times where the Lord comes and says, do you want to get well? Then I'll help. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the response from those that hear that is, no, I want to stay right here. I'm comfortable right here. I don't want to get well. Choice was made. A choice was made. Stephen Arterburn, when he wrote a a wonderful book on healing, actually made this statement. At one time or another, every human being needs healing. The type of healing needed will differ depending on who the person is and his or her circumstances. In every instance, healing is a choice in which God and man are involved. Healing is a choice. It is a choice and one that we have to make. Now, the Lord may be standing in front of us saying, I'm going to help you. I'll reach down and grab you and pull you right up. But you got to take my hand. You have to do what I say. And if you'll do what I say, then let's get out of here. Those are those moments where free will determines everything. Some of the choices that we are confronted with throughout the course of the day, those 35,000 choices, some of them are innocuous. Some of them have great consequence for us that we have to deal with. I had to, to acknowledge that just last weekend. I hate that when I'm working on a message and God decides to illustrate it in my life. But here's, here's the whole point of it. I had two kidney stones that I had to deal with. I know because that's number 10 and 11 for me that I am fully aware of having passed. So I have this chronic issue with kidney stones that I've had to try to sort out. And some of those stones, well, they're donikers. So I've had to figure this out. And I know certain things that cause these stones in my life. One of them is grievous to me. It's peanut butter. I love peanut butter. I love peanut butter. And peanut butter on an English muffin is manna from heaven. It is manna from heaven. But English muffins cause kidney stones in me as well. English muffins and peanut butter are both extremely high in oxalates, which is what causes my kidney stones. So I haven't had an English muffin since we discovered this, but I have cheated from time to time on peanut butter. And during the Christmas season, I was cheating. And there were consequences. Horrible, horrible consequences. By the way, cashews fit on that list as well. They're very high in oxalates. I love cashews. From Thanksgiving to Christmas, I polished off one of those Costco (laughs) jugs of cashews. I paid the price for it last weekend. Sometimes in our free will, there are consequences. But sometimes it's even deeper than that. The choices that we make change the course of our lives. And that's what this man discovered. So as we make our way through 35,000 decisions a day, and we come across one of these, one of the big questions is, how do I harness my free will in such a way that I make the right choice? Well, I want to show you, because there's some scriptural ways to do it. In fact, at least three that I'm aware of. And if you will think about these in your decision-making process, you will find yourself in a place where you begin to make different choices than you have made in the past, simply by saying, I'm looking to make God-honoring choices now. 
I'm looking to utilize my free will the way I should. And it all begins in your heart. It is a desire issue. Take a look at this. This is dealing particularly with issues at work. That's how we would apply this passage from the book of Ephesians now. So look at this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We have a lot of choices that we make even at work. This can apply to every aspect of your life. It just happens that the application of it is dealing with work or occupation. But look at this issue. A couple different times we have Paul telling us that it all begins with your heart. We are faced with choices. Let's take the application at work where we get to make different decisions. Am I going to honor my boss or am I going to dishonor my boss? Am I going to do what I was asked to do or am I going to bow up against it? Am I going to cause unity or am I going to cause strife? Am I going to plug in whatever you want? Well, what Paul is teaching is that in the face of every one of those decisions, let it become a hard issue and you ask yourself, how do the decisions I am about to make honor Christ? It's a hard issue. And once we reconcile all of these choices in our heart, it progresses to our mind. Take a look. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So in my heart, I determine that I'm going to honor God with the choices that I am faced with. And in my mind, I'm going to take captive every thought so that I can do the right thing as God would want me to do it. So now I've gone from the want to into the decision-making aspect of this. I'm going to think about it the right way. But ultimately, it's not just a heart issue or a mind issue. It becomes an issue of our soul Everything that defines who we are. Take a look at this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. If you are ever looking for a passage of Scripture to help you as you make choices, this may very possibly be the most pointed and practical verse you will come across because you have three things. Rejoice always. I will find the joy in every situation, no matter what. Pray without ceasing. So I'm going to seek God's direction no matter what. I've already looked for joy. Now I'm praying, looking for direction, and I'm going to give thanks in all circumstances. So ahead of time, I'm going to thank God for the answer for my prayers. So now, once that has happened, once you've gotten your soul lined up like this, your heart already has the want to, your mind is looking for the right responses, and now your soul is in agreement, decisions start happening in such a way that they honor the Lord. Now here's the coolest thing about this. When you are rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances, and your soul is seeking answers, what you really discover is that you are looking in God's Word to find the answers. Nowhere else, just God's Word. 
And there are so many things that the Bible speaks to that if we will go looking for the answers, we will find them. We will find them. I love how Charles Swindoll says this. Those who struggle the least with the will of God are those who know the word of God best. And that is truth. That is truth. So when we start looking at this idea of free will and 35,000 decisions that have to be made in a day, some of them are made by God, the directed will of God. Some of them we don't have much influence in because in the permissive will of God, God has permitted certain things to happen. But within the permissive will of God, God has said you have choices. Make the right ones. I'll help you. I'll help you. Just listen to my voice and I'll help you. And we can get through this in a way that will not only honor me, but it will honor you too. That's how God longs to shape our decision-making process. Maybe you need some other scripture that can help with this. So I want to leave you with two verses of scripture that can help with this whole thing. If you're a note taker, dial in on these two because they may be exactly what you need. The first one deals with the directed will of God, the things that are outside of your control. God's just being God and you have to deal with God being God. So rather than bowing up and and kicking the dirt and screaming at God, there's a better way. There's a way for you to be able to say, okay, God, I don't necessarily understand what you're doing, but I trust you. Here it is. It's found in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In the face of the directed will of God, as you deal with those issues, this passage of Scripture is not a place of surrender. It is a place of partnership. Okay, God, whatever you're doing, I'm the clay, you're the potter, shape me, I'll trust you. You find that all you have to do is justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Because if it's up to him, and he's the only one that has any influence in this, then you're just along for the ride. But when it comes to the permissive will of God, maybe you need a passage of scripture to help with that too. And I want to encourage you. Whichever one of these you need, and maybe at some point you're going to need both, memorize both of these verses of Scripture. If you need a challenge for this year, memorize both of these passages of Scripture. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and then Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So you come up against a decision in the permissive will of God, Right here, you get this reminder. Where's my heart at? Where is my mind at? Where is my soul at? And what am I doing with my strength, my actions, the outcome of my decision? Memorize this passage of Scripture, and it'll keep you thinking the right way when you are confronted with 35,000 decisions a day. If you want to honor the Lord, Get into his word and see how he encourages us to do 